Scots Whiskey Explorers, a podcast where we discuss everything there is to discuss about whiskey. I'm Peter, and I'll be joined by Stuart in each episode, where we'll ask the questions and seek out the answers that are prompted by a love of whiskey. If you want to know more about how we came to be making this podcast, please have a listen to the Season 1 trailer. In Season 1, we'll be focusing on the fundamentals of single malt Scotch whisky production. Everything from barley to fermentation to maturation will be examined and explored in exhaustive detail. If you'd like to know more about Scots Whisky Explorers, or if you'd like to get in touch, leave comments or suggestions, please go to www.scotswhiskeyexplorers.com and you can find us on Twitter at WhiskeyScots. Thank you for listening to Scots Whisky Explorers. We hope you enjoy it. Now, please sit back, relax, pour yourself a dram, and enjoy our conversation about distilling. Hey, Peter, man, how you doing? Yeah, good, Stuart. Good to see you, as ever. You too. Keeping well. Keeping well, yep. Um, everything's tickety-boo. Um, oh, see, just before we um, kick off, I keep meaning uh-huh. to say we should um, give a wee bit of a shout-out to some of the good folks that are uh, taking their time to listen to Scots Whiskey Explorers. No, actually, and especially because we we have mixed up this recording a wee bit. We thought we would try and be a wee bit more uh, focused <laughs> and, and uh, deliberate and uh, and a little bit shorter in, in, in the time we were taking in the hope that that would concentrate our minds a wee bit. Uh, so we, we have broken up this 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 the distilling process. And we're now in number four, which is a uh, yeah, quite quite a way down the line, and and thinking about how distillation works. But I was um, so thanks for listening, folks. Yeah, I, I think we should give a, a massive shout out to to our listeners in Denmark, uh, our brothers and sisters just across the water in Ireland, uh, the good people of Belgium. Excellent. We've got listeners in India. Yay. So uh, hello to everyone in India. We've got some fellow uh, Scots whiskey explorers uh, in the Czech Republic, in Taiwan. And it almost goes without saying there's going to be whiskey fans in the United States because we know they're big whiskey fans. And obviously there's many, many people around the UK who are like us, keen to explore this Buscaba water of life. Uh, so yeah. hello to all the listeners and, and I think I'm, just, I'm just gonna raise a wee glass to that myself. Aye, aye, absolutely. Here's here's to all the listeners. So as much as you and I Peter we did this uh, we set out on this just for our own efforts. Um, I think it's particularly heartening and uh, heartwarming that that folks would take the time uh, to listen to it. So, yeah, thanks very much, everybody. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. So, we're on distilling, but we've been chatting about the, the need to just backpedal a wee bit. We've got, we've got a few more nuggets of information to just toss around a little bit with regards to the condensers. Yeah. And I think you've done a wee bit of work on that, Stuart. Um, well, more, more than we squeezed in in the last time. Yeah, I think um, maybe I was 
guilty of maybe not maybe not doing enough beforehand. So I felt <laughs> I felt a bit guilty, and I thought I better go <laughs> I better go and do some more work on this. And um, I went back and I was I was reading some back issues of the uh, esteemed whiskey magazine, and the venerable Ian Wisniewski had written a great article about condensers. So it just got me thinking, um, as much as he's got some great information in there, I was thinking about, we'd been talking about it in the previous episode, and I, I kind of cack-handedly described what I thought a condenser was, how it was constructed. Now, I think I'm wrong in some respects, and I think I'm also correct in some respects. Obviously, there's different distilleries are going to have different condensers, and they might have their own particular construction and shape and size. I don't know where I got this from, but I, I had always thought they were box-like. And it was like, a, you know, maybe a, a box the size of a fridge that was oh. crammed full of little copper pipes. And the that was kept cool somehow. And the spirit was flowing through this box and condensing. Or the vapour was flowing through the box and the vapour was condensing and the spirit was running out the, the other side. But I, I'd never really tested that idea in my head. I, I, I don't know where I got that from. It's meant probably something that's um, been cooking in my brain for many, many, many years. And I should have noticed that there's huge big cylindrical condensers in almost every almost every still house you, you, yeah. you visit. So... Yeah, had you had you not picked up that that was the condenser? Zero, zero. No, I was thinking, oh, there's a condenser. But then, whenever in my head I was thinking about them, when I wasn't in the still house, I was thinking about this big square refrigerator box type thing. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I need, I need to find out if there are any distilleries that don't have big cylindrical condensers. Oh. That's that's what I need to find out. But so far, I haven't found any. So much. Maybe I've just been fucking making it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe in in one, and and that that's a bit, isn't it? You know, like like yourself, I've been in I've been in a number of distilleries. I've been in a number of distillery sites, and and it's sometimes a wee bit hard to remember which which bits fit where. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember reading a book about the art of persuasion many many years ago. An old pen uh, yeah an old paperback um by some psychologist art of persuasion and uh, i didn't get through it very far <laughs> but uh, what i do remember reading from it was that whoever gets their argument in first generally holds sway so the the the, the first time you encounter a piece of information that tends to be the one that has priority in your hierarchy of thinking if you ever mm. You know, if you come across conflicting theories, it's the one that gets in there first. Generally, has the, the top hand. Um, so maybe that was how it was described to me, or how how I first came across condensers was the big square thing. But anyway, we should maybe talk about the the well. Since I was reading Ian Wisniewski's article, it's obviously become a lot clearer to me that the condensers you'll see in the distillery usually situated behind the, the stills, sometimes it placed in the exterior of the building, so the, the pipe might go might go from the still head out the wall. And there's usually a, a, a large cylindrical column, maybe, you know, maybe like 10 feet 
high. And inside there are many, many copper tubes running the length of that big cylinder. And the cold water is flowing through those tubes and the, the vapor enters the top of the condenser and at some point will condense against those copper pipes as the vapor is cooled. And that's generally how it's organized. And am I right in thinking then that what you'll do then is get a high then surface area to volume ratio so that it keeps the mellowing process we talked about in the in the reflux process and the chemical reactions that are going on within the still it, it enhances that mellowing process then with this extra contact with all these copper tubes that are in the condensers yeah um, what I would be interested to find out is the, the, the prevalence of copper is in, in the distillery is usually put down to the fact that it is good at extracting the sulfur compounds from the, from the spirit and those kind of sulfury notes don't end up in the, in the whiskey. But I wonder, do they extract anything else? Are there other elements of the spirit of the wash that are captured by that copper well, contact and, 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 and removed from the final spirit. I know that, yes. you know, the sulfur is always right. the one that's mentioned. You'd been very eloquent in your descriptions of the wee fingers that go out to engage with the vapours from the copper in terms of the, the copper's molecular construction. And I, I quite liked that. I quite liked how you could understand them. But having, having then you know, extended that thought, because we talked about the chemical interaction then between the copper and the vapour, which does, it changes the molecular structure of that vapour and mm -hmm. it, you, you then get uh, copper sulphate, that, the green stuff that appears, in, most obviously in the spirit safe, and we're going, we're going to come off to, onto the spirit safe in a wee minute or two. But, and that, that's part of the mellowing process, it's taking the sulphur out of the vapour that, that came in, that was created through the fermentation process. But it's, it's not just that. There's there's all those kind of all those kind of more toxic, the cyanides and stuff like that that are in the mix, that are absorbed by the copper as well. As so there's cyanides and the acids, and I think also carbonates. Now I'm now having we fessed up at the beginning of recording this, but Stuart, that neither of us was a chemist, and I've now burst my envelope in terms of being a chemist because that's it, you know. I'm nearly. I'm just showing off now. <laughs> that I've picked up a few words along the way to understand that it's not just the interaction with copper and sulphur, but there's other stuff going on in terms of the the vapor interacting with the copper. And I don't think we're putting two and two together and making more than four by suggesting that that interaction between the copper and the the vapor or the alcoholic vapour, is through the whole process. It's in the still, in the neck, over the line arm, perhaps in a purifier if you've got it, and then through into the condenser. Mm -hmm. So all of that is about the mellowing and the detoxifying element of distilling. Now, I'm probably overstating the, the toxic element, but in terms of taking out those, the, those chemicals that could be rooted in 
they can assign and stuff, that's an understandable uh, connection to be making. So I think getting back to your your point, or maybe it was mine, about <laughs> the surface area to copper content, I think that, that seems like that's an active process all the way through. Yeah. That, that the vapour is interacting with the copper and, and, and condensing um, and mellowing the nature of the spirit from, from beginning to end till it's captured in the, in the spirit receiver. Yeah. I think that's borne out by how much copper you see in a distillery. It's almost everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and also, I suppose we, we also picked up on a couple of outliers of where copper had been substituted with stainless steel. Mm-hmm. And, and in an active process, not just well, a budget-led thing, but actually Elsa Bay apparently has condensers that have stainless steel tubes. And I picked up recently that in the past, I'm not quite sure of the dates, but Dal Ewan also had stainless steel tubes instead of copper in the condenser and again to make a more sulfury to extract less sulfur from the new make yeah so it's heavier it's meatier it's well you read it as to make a sulfury new make it's to extract less sulfur in the Mm -hmm. process and i mean dalyun's probably well it also would be the same because these are distilleries that are making whiskey for blends and they're not going to be held up in the with great reverence in terms of the process and the great malt whiskey pantheon of you know we can't afford to be shifting anything that that's not Dal Ewan or Elsa Bay's role in the no. scheme of things and in, in the end I was also picking up that you know those heavier spirits you know the, the ones that are described as more heavier new makes like and sulfury like Ben Rennes and Mortlach and, and to an extent Dal Ewan they're the type of spirits that later on although they might take longer to mature in terms of getting into their teens to produce a more rounded spirit. But once they are available to a blender, they're a godsend in terms of what those spirits themselves will do to enhancing the blend in terms of holding together the complexity of flavours and adding body to the to the blend itself. And I think once you start to see or get an understanding of how individual distilleries work in that way in terms of developing the flavour profile and then what they're offering up to the industry, which despite our love of malt still is only, you know, is no more than 10% really of the consumption of the whiskey that the world enjoys. You can begin to see that it's a little bit more nuanced, but at the same time, a little bit less precious about what single malt means. You know, so Dal Ewan would be producing a sulfury new make, presumably because it was to be substituting for something else in the portfolio of Diageo. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Whenever whenever we're thinking about any of the 120 or 100 and however many single malt distilleries are bottling at the moment, we should, shouldn't forget that the ones that were around in the 1800s or the turn of the century getting into the 1900s almost all of their output would be for blends and and they were never intended in some respects to be savoured and, and tasted as single whiskies. Certainly so, not the way we've we've come to enjoy them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I suppose that there's a there's a tension there, isn't there, between the 
the art and the craft between the commercial reality that the majority of these whiskies are going into with blends and have a very specific and important place in a lot of blends in terms of how they hold that flavour profile together. Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason it's called the whiskey industry. It's not the whiskey art experiment. No. It's not the whiskey <laughs> olfaction experiment. You know, <laughs> it's the it's an industry, and it's gonna it's gonna live and die by whether it's economically viable, uh, and that's that's obviously cast in, in a very cold light by how many distilleries are no longer with us. True, true enough. At, at, at a time when there must be what thirty new distilleries in the last ten years, so we, we're at a peculiar twist in terms of Scot Scots whisky history. And it was a massive boom period. And well, that's worthy of our own thoughts and podcasts at some point in the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, boom times indeed. And mm. whenever there's a whenever there's a new release that comes out that I think, oh quite I like the sound of that. I wonder if I can get hold of that. I have to keep reminding myself there's always more whiskey. Yeah. You don't have to end up being being that guy who's shelling out hand over fist to get that one, because there's always more whiskey. There's always yeah. more whiskey. I can't and believe how much whiskey is available at the moment. It's, it's staggering yeah. amount of variety out there. And I also suspect that if you're, if you're paying that higher price, you're likely to be a bit more reluctant to open the bottle. And well, therein lies another moral philosophy podcast about whiskeys for drinking. As um, Andy at... Uh, fine malts is keen to point out and he was the first person I heard using this phrase he said there's a reason there's a hole in the bottle (laughs) (laughs) saying all that if if we could park that little keep that little cul-de-sac open and uh, I was maybe going to come back and and, and finish off the episode with a wee quote from a book which touches upon this I was just reading something recently and I thought "That's, that's quite you know maybe a nice wee line or two to round off an episode but we'll maybe come back we've digressed yeah, already yeah well we're always i was just thinking we're always in need of a wee bit of focus so that might be a nice way of, of getting us to focus we've got a wee bit of extra understanding of condensers and it's a perfect opportunity actually for me to 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 show off a wee bit of extra homework i've been doing myself because we're both talked about you know the convention being everything you know everything goes to the back of the still some of those condensers are visible within the still house which obviously that's going to take a slower time in terms of the vapor to condense so then i guess i guess that creates more copper content blah blah blah. but lots of lots of action goes on outside of of the still house in terms of whether it's a condenser or a worm tub and then then we found this and well i suppose what we've tried to do is pick out a few examples where this is the, the convention and, and then I hope that we can show that actually the convention doesn't really hold up. It's, there's a kind of middle ground, but there's a, quite a lot of variation. And mm. sure enough, although there are the convention in the industry now is to have condensers, and I think there is, if I'm reading right, there is as few as, there's less than 20 distilleries now that actually have worm tubs. And of the newer ones, I think only... What I've picked up is that only Arno and Ballandalach went for worm tubs. 
But also, in the middle of all this, in the convention that's condensers, we've got at least three distilleries who don't have vertical condensers. They've got horizontal ones. Horizontal so condensers? Yeah. So, what's the reason for that then? Well, as we know, it's not all going to be about the art, is it? <laughs> it might be about the space available. It might be, yeah. And, and in truth, the three distillers I picked up got the, in varying configurations. Some have got in spirit, some on wash stills. But Dalmore, McDuff, and Glenallachy have all got horizontal condensers. And at least from what we pick up from the pictures, McDuff's condenser is inside the still house. So for all there is, the so-called standard, as ever, these sometimes feel a bit like the standard is almost the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, rules are there but broken, eh? Yeah. And I mean, they, these are all processes that clearly work for those particular individual distilleries. And what I was reminded in, in picking up was going back to, we'd seen those pictures in, in Barnard's book when he uh, visited the original Hazelburn, mm. who essentially had what looked like a condenser on top of the still. And it was somewhere between a condenser and a Loman still that came later. But and um, I had that beautiful type, uh, the, the name of it was a, a deflegmatter, deflegmatter, which is such a great word in itself, but it seemed like they'd, they'd kind of cut out the middleman of the neck and the line arm and just gone straight for the condenser. Wow. However, I digress, I digress again, but just to point out, if there's any budding distilleries, distillery builders out there, that clearly the rule book, there's, there is a rule book of some description, but you've got some options in there. Yeah, you're not allowed to use it. <laughs> 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 so, would I be right in thinking that the horizontal condensers, if you've got, if you've got vapour condensing on, on the copper inside the condenser, mm. and that condenser is uh, vertical, then the, the spirit that condenses, the vapour condenses on the copper and it runs down at the speed of gravity, right? So what's that? Some, so many metres per second per second. What is that? Can you remember from physics? Uh, I can't remember the speed of gravity. I can't remember. Is it 46 metres per second? Per second? No, is that too much? Uh, I can't remember. Well, anyway. If, I'm already blinded by science. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, so if the condensers are horizontal, then your condensed vapour is not going to be travelling at that speed. Mm. So there again, you have a period, a point within the process where they can manipulate it so there's more copper contact. So it's slower. The distillate is, is passing over the copper at a slower speed, allowing the, the hairy copper to grab onto those bad compounds. Well, and, well just to throw a, an, another quizzical hand grenade into that. <laughs> or is it? Because we talked about condensers, so, so they're maybe, what, three, three metres tall? Condensers, three, four metres? But if it's horizontal, it might be three or four metres wide. But it might only be a metre in diameter. Wow. So would that mean that the vapour then has only a, a metre to fall over the copper compared to four metres to trundle its way down? 
but it's still it's going to be entering at one end and leaving at the other yeah, end. Yeah. So presumably a slower. Well, it's 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 open to question, isn't it? What's happening in that process? <laughs> we need we need to go to Glenallachie and bother somebody up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd like a I'd like a regular tour, please. What do you mean it only lasts half an hour? <laughs> I've, got, I've got at least an hour's worth of questions about the condenser alone. <laughs> yeah. Actually, well, maybe Billy Walker at Glenarchy probably one of the folk who's open to that kind of nonsense. So maybe we'll send him a Christmas card, Stuart, and see if, see if post, post-COVID he'll put up with a couple of numpties coming up. He'll look at his... Horizontal condenser. Absolutely. Yeah. Post COVID. Oh crikey. Yeah. That would be great, wouldn't it? Eh? Yeah. So we're um where are we? We backtracked a wee bit. Maybe we, we refluxed ourselves and uh, got in we we recapped around the condenser. But I think if I'm thinking rightly where we finished off the last time. We got past the condenser, and yeah. we were now flowing with the spirit into the spirit safe, which I think we'd mentioned was now more artifice now. You know that back in the day when customer the next side had a far more um, micromanagement view and less trusting view of what distillers do. Mm. There was there was a, sh- a shared lock on on the on the spirit safe as a way of keeping the the spirit run the the, the liquid that was then flowing through. Out, out of harm's way so that nobody could be dipping in a wee glass and having a taste or um, drawing off some, some new meat for themselves. But, you know, I, 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 I was quite, I didn't know whether to believe this or not because it seemed a little bit too, seemed a little bit too cute, you know, that the spirit safe was first used in 1823 at Portellan. Really, distillery. Yeah, I can't remember where I read that, but I thought I thought that's that's quite. I don't know. Well, I I have to acknowledge your greater knowledge there. I, I it's not something I'd picked up along the way in the travels to to here. I, I I picked up a couple of other things that you know the it's essentially like a like a a glass tank that's held together beautifully with the highly polished brass now yeah. and. I haven't seen a newer distillery or in the, in the kind of new regime in terms of uh, customs and excise where there hasn't been, there hasn't been any need to take that viewing mechanism out of the process. I, but that does perform a function that we'll come on to in terms of directing the spirit and how you get the right stuff. But I'm I'm just wondering, right? So correct me if I'm wrong with regards to the prevalence of excisemen on Isla. It's my it's my understanding that distilleries proliferated on Isla because there was no excisemen on the island. Was was it not a, a bit of a like an administrative anomaly for a while? That it got kind of got forgotten about? Aye. So if you've got excisemen in all the distilleries in the mainland and they're there they're they're living on site and they're part of the the fabric of the distillery. Do those distilleries need a spirit safe if there's somebody there monitoring it and being very, uh-huh. very on site and con- contrasting that with 
the Isla distilleries where there are no excisemen and eventually somebody from HMRC says, hang on a minute, we need to get control of those island, those distilleries on Isla. How are we going to do that? We'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to put the, 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 the spirit that's flowing from the condenser, we're going to make that go into a safe and only our guys are going to have the key to it. And that's why the first one ended up at Portella. Mate, I, I, I'm completely shooting in the dark here and uh, shooting from the hip. It's a tempting. Would that, would that be borne out? In, in fact, I wonder. I suppose what it would do, it stops interference at that point because, of course, as, as we'll come to, that spirit running through, I'll come back to this, this point, but that spirit running through is going to be held in the spirit receiver mm -hmm. and then asks. But I'm pretty sure now I'm coming back to this. But what it means then is no one can siphon anything off in the middle of the process. Right. Goes to the receiver, and there'll be there's a broad calculus, isn't there? About for this amount of wash, you will get X amount of of whiskey. Right. I mean, you know, it's a little bit more than something like 400 liters per. I can't remember what the input would be. That's also something that, that, that I read when it comes to the intermediate spirit receiver or the, the, the chargers. I've read that there's so many measurements are taken along the way and all of those um, volumes of liquid have to be accounted for. If you've amassed X amount of low wines, then HMRC want to know what your final spirit run volume is and they will be calculating it everything's measured everything's really taken to account and if there's any anomalies obviously somebody's going to have to answer for that the the ratio i was thinking is that i think it's something like four between 400 and 415 liters of whiskey per ton of barley i think okay so so the fact that we've got access to that information in is in general circulation would suggest that that those kind of ratios and calculus are all well known within the process so if anyone's slipping off with a, a cask of their own then the customs and excise are going to know about that all right. all right i think that's a nice that's a nice point to make that actually the spirits faith came as almost like a an arm's length control as opposed to the the on-site individual of, of the gauger or the excise officer. Aye. I mean, possibly, I'm, I'm just shooting from the hip there and thinking out loud, is that the case? I don't know. It would seem to make sense, but who's to say? I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to know. I'd like to know how close to the truth that might be. Yeah, and if, you know, those, those that spirit saves, that's coming in at the point of the first legal licences in terms of where Glenlivet came in in 1824 and stuff like that. So those, those are... You know, that certainly, in, in my head, that's a kind of modern era of industrial level productions of of, of whiskey, isn't it? So I, I, that, I think that I think that that holds that holds some water for me, Stuart, in terms of your thoughts on that. Just while you're you're mentioning that there, just up the road from Port Ellen, there's another a wee, another wee noodly nugget, for maybe more for the for the. For any Glaswegians who might be listening, well, it sounds like we're on the local radio now. <laughs> I think I hinted at this in the last one, that um, the Spirit Safe in 
Brookladdy was made in the Broomy Law on a, in Elliot Street. There was a, a foundry um, down there. I remember you saying, down, yeah. uh, down Finiston Way. Yeah. Lansfield Key, and it was actually called, it's Lansfield Foundry uh, on Elliot Street. So if you're in, if you're in Glasgow going down that, that bit of uh, Clydeside between the Squinty Bridge and the Kingston Bridge, as you go along, there's some flats there on the left-hand side, and then there's a gap site, and also uh, a wee industrial state where a, well, a well-known uh, Scotch whisky auction house hangs out. Yeah, so so right in front of that small wee bit of industrial estate was the site of uh, of the Lansfield Foundry, and that's where, and certainly where the brass works, that's that's where Brookladdy's Spirit Safe was made. Brilliant. Do, do you know Brookladdy's Spirit Safe is original they've only ever had one i would presume i imagine so that would yeah. that would date the, the 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 site of that foundry being um operational around about 18 late 1870s 1880s i don't i haven't gone into the the ins and outs of the end of that particular foundry but and, and it worked backwards i've been in Berkladi doing the usual tours you do and just noticed the, the the wee plaque on the spirit safe and thought, oh, I like that. I know where that is. Right. And did it say Elliot Street on it? Yeah, two hundred and thirty-one Elliot Street. <laughs> Great. Um, I mean, Elliot Street now, now is there. It's, it's it's divided by the expressway itself. But you you wouldn't you don't need to be troubled by that because it's it's as far as I can understand it. It was at the more, more at the riverside, the uh, river end of the street. Uh, yeah, it was a, a nice wee, uh, nice wee nugget there. We, a wee local touch. Yeah, a wee bit of living industrial, industrial history. Yeah, if I'm remembering rightly, we did describe the spirit safe a little bit, but it, it works by really simple levers where you can direct the flow mm-hmm. of the liquid because it's gone through the condensers, come back. The vapors going through the condensers, come back to the liquid form, and you can direct that then. Certainly, the, the first run there won't be much manipulation required in, in terms of what's to be uh, what's to be extracted. But the second run is when we get into uh, into those magic words of uh, of cuts. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and Every, everything's everything's collected from the wash still, and then all of the all of the all of that distillate from the first run is put into the put into the low wine still. Yeah, and we and when we set out. Way back in the all those days ago, in terms of thinking about this process, we talked about we would have we would describe that as four shots in terms of in order: four shots, middle cut, and faints. Mm-hmm. And I I think I signed off the last episode by mentioning something called the Hippocratum. <laughs> and. Yeah. I suppose we, sh- we should put everybody out of their misery and let them know that the Hippocratum, I don't know why it has this such a, a, a Latin-sounding name, is the, the piece of muslin that's placed either over the spout or over the bowl in the spirit safe to collect the verdigris, the, the copper sulfate that is, that's kind of flaking off the copper. And it's become solid, yeah. Has become solid, so I wonder what I should have looked this up. Hippocratum, what that actually means in Greek. 
But there you go. But Whenever you, you're in a in a still room now, you can look the stillman in the eye and say, "Nice hippocrat, mate." <laughs> See what he says. <laughs> I like your hippocrat. Where'd you get it? <laughs> yeah, I'll let you ask that question when we finally get to. <laughs> so, have we covered the bit about the in the the low winds still? Once the the froth thing's over, that really that still can be run quite quickly. Well, the wash that, bill, you mean? Yeah, sorry. The, the the first distillation. Once you've got the frothing done, you don't want any of that froth coming over and carrying over the the more of the noxious things. But once that's done. Once the head has been broken, and I, I, I thought that maybe I just made that up, but I have checked, and apparently that is that is a phrase. <laughs> certainly, in, certainly in the world of Charlie McLean. So if Charlie McLean says it's so, then I, I believe Charlie McLean. So the first distillation through, let's run through the spirits. I've done the condensed thing, spit, gone through spirits, blah, blah blah blah. And now we're doing the second run, and we're we're doing this on the assumption that we're doing double distillation, of course. But you you'd picked up that actually the first initial shots of the four shots because you detect them because they're they're not soluble in water so when you're trying to work out the bits and pieces that you want in your run if you take a sample which is where you would maneuver the levers in your in the spirit safe so to allow you to take a sample some people do it with hydrometers some of the cells now will use computers and just work it out by time but there's a really simple method that to understand whether you're 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 at the point of of starting your your middle cut that if if you add some water to the your sample that the those fatty acids won't dissolve in water so if there are any fatty acids that are part of the four shots you're you that will look misty and cloudy yeah. but you'd picked up that that what you're testing for there isn't really what you're distilling i i had always assumed that the four shots were unpotable. They were undrinkable because of some inherent chemical characteristic within that part of the spirit run. But it would appear by my reading that that chemical taint of the first part of the run is due to a residual compound that is found in the head of the still, in the line arm and the condenser because of the faints of the previous run. So that was quite a revelation for me. Uh, I'd always thought that when you're making that middle cut, you, the first stuff that's coming over the, through the still, we don't want that because it's, in, it's impure. Yeah, it's all bad, bad alcohol. Yeah, it's got bad stuff in it. We don't want it. We need to, we need to run the still and let that spirit run off before we can go to the middle cut. And whenever I was thinking about it, I would think, okay, well, there's something in that first part of this spirit run that's not desirable. But actually, it's just a hangover from the previous run. So the f you get your four shots come through, then you get your middle cut, but it's really nice, it's nice and pure, and, you, and we'll talk about the, the cut points in a minute. And once you come off spirit, once you make that cut 
and you go to the faints, those faints are imparting and, and leaving behind some residual chemical compound on the hardware of the of the still uh, and the, the, the line arm and the condenser. And they have to be washed through with the four shots of the next run. But a kind of cleaning out process, they're not actually bad alcohols that you would never want to keep. They're just there's a bit of cleaning to be done. Which begs the qu- which begs the question, why not clean it? Is there something is it just because of the timings involved that you don't have that window of opportunity to clean those what should we call them? Those faint residues. Is it because you don't you don't have the window of opportunity to clean them through before the next spirit run? I I, I don't think that that folks because there's there's good I picked up that there's a lot of good reason to allow the still to rest after after a run, and in actual fact, let it cool down. We see all those the, those beautiful big brass covers, domed covers over like with a, a large hole where you could get a person into the still if need be that they need to be left open so there's lots of oxygen gets in and that rejuvenates the copper no i wonder if it's just something more practical because there's quite a lot of work goes on to the in the wash still in terms of that there are quite a lot of caustics go in there and clean that's cleaned out isn't it mm-hmm. but there's nothing in there that's used again whereas in the, the spirit still or the low wine still those four shots, although they're not kept to go into the spirit, they're, they're, they're diverted to be redistilled. Okay. So I wonder if that's just the practicality of it, that, well, you don't need to get your gloves on and your caustic soda out because next time round, we'll clean it out anyway. It's going through anyway, yeah. And someone along the line has worked out that actually that might be a contributor to the flavour profile anyway and, and in thinking that i'm thinking that people often talk about the waxy nature of klein leash as a spirit that maybe there's something about their faints run or where they make their cut gives <coughs> that kind of waxy stuff permeates broader around the more broadly around the distillery yeah. because uh, well again another it's one of those it's not, it's almost like apocryphal isn't it it's, like, it's become such a it's nearly as Legendary as the Dalwhinny worm tubs is that the, the Klein Leash waxiness, yeah, and that cleaned out the wax. Suddenly, Klein Leash didn't taste like Klein Leash anymore, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I have no idea if these stories are true now. You, it's that bit where you've heard them so many times, you're just not sure. I mean, it doesn't matter if they are or not, but it's helping us, and I think it's helping you and I understand that that bit of this. There's a kind of practicality here of well. Go up and put anything a wee bit noxious up there because we've actually got some really nice hot liquid coming through in a wee while. <laughs> we'll just take it over anyway, and yeah. we'll just gather whatever we we take out of it anyway. And it might yeah. it might be that the uh, the economics of it is that to stop and clean is more costly. Time is money, so mm-hmm. let let the four shots do the work. So the spirit's coming through. The stillman has turned the handle to move the spout from one bowl. Yeah. to the next bowl only when it's deemed to be the point on the spirit run we want to start collecting which by my reading is round about 75% ABV is that is that ringing true to you? 
Yeah, I think there are there are differences in over the piece, but broadly that that would fit with the average. Since since we're in the twenty first century, Stuart, so we go back and think we'll talk about the distiller as opposed to giving them any gender. I th- yeah, absolutely. I thought well in the last ones not to give any gender to the, to the person. But by the by, let's not go, we won't get caught up in that. But if we, if we talk about the distiller, that art of deciding when to change from stuff we're going to have to redo to let's let's hunker down and take the cut of the, of the good stuff is is somewhere along the trail of what we talked about is is between is a, an art a craft and and a little bit of science all in, all mixed into one and there'll be a mixture then of how distillers and distilling companies choose where to make that cut it does come down to judgment doesn't it about if you're choosing to have a, an individual make that point others will say right okay 35 minutes in we're going to turn turn the handle and then we're going to start taking the cup yeah the kind of coming on to spirit and deciding when you're going to start that middle cut seems to be a mixture across the board of making that decision based on when the spirit runs clear as you were describing about the the taking a sample and putting making it um equal measure with 50 50 spirit to water and if it's clear then that means that all of that all of the faints residue has gone and we and you're you're on pure spirit it seems that, to that be seems beautifully low tech it's quite nice yeah but there's also i think there's probably a degree of decision making with regards to what you want your final spirit character to be like so if you're if you're wanting some of those higher alcohols to come through you might i don't i, I wouldn't say that it's that i've seen it, it's across the board that everybody goes at 75 so no, and example, I, think it, I think it also depends what kind of spirit well you just said this isn't as much uh, it depends what kind of spirit you're trying to produce and I know in part of in thinking about this, we had thought that a good a good distillery to use as an example would would be Springbank because it, it it produces three different types of spirit: lightly peated Springbank, two and a half distillation, heavily peated long roll, double distillation, Hazelburn, Hazel no peat, triple distillation, and some distillers I'm led to believe can be a wee bit um, canny and a wee bit bashful about sharing their cut points. But I, I think given that the three stills in Springbank produce these three different whiskies, it does help, I think, that they, they're they much more up front because there's, there's a, a board in the still room about the cut points for them. And I think there, there is also something about where peat fits in because I, I suspect that peated whiskies will have, also have a, a lower alcohol the starting point, for some reason or other, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite certain about. Just as a comparison, Hazelburn will start the cut at 79% alcohol. Ooh, it's pretty high. Yeah, Springbank at 76 and Long Row at 69. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And when and did then, they come off? Well, Hazelburn at 63. Springbank at 60 and Long Row 
at 58. So of those, I, I have no idea if this, this would be oversimplifying it, I think, to talk about the arithmetic of that, because I suspect there are different proportions come through at 79% compared to the proportions that come through at 63%. However, that cut for Hazelburn is, a, in terms of alcohol percentage, is 16. Similarly for Springbank, it's also 16. But Longo is much shorter. It's only 11. Mm. And well, just when you're talking about... On, on you go. Well, I was, I was just going to mention that you were talking about the different characters and maybe the different flavours that are coming through at different points of the spirit run. Yeah. And I was going to mention that you and I had um, the good fortune to do a tasting hosted by Colhoman where we didn't taste any whiskies. All we tasted was the spirit at various cut points on the spirit run, which was fantastically, you know, educational and um, enlightening to, to really get in touch with what's coming off. Peter's got his samples there in front of him. So was it 75% that came on to spirit? And then so many minutes later, we tasted 70% 70 spirit. And then so many minutes later on the spirit run, they collected it at 65. Can, can you talk us through what they had there, Peter? Yeah, I'm just getting them in order just now. So Cochoman must be a very clean distillery because they're on spirit after five minutes. Oh, well, maybe is that because they're quite young? Well, young relatively. I wonder then if it means about where they take their cut later in terms of how much how much of the faints. Uh, but the, the faints have still got to run through, haven't they? Aye, aye. Uh, my notions in that are clearly problematic. Better phone up Wills, get him to explain it. However, <laughs> five minutes, that whiskey came through at 74% alcohol. After 25, 72. After 45, 69%, and then their final cut, I assume, after 90 minutes, 65.5. Uh, and, and what I think, you, you, might, you might concur, you might disagree, but what I thought was interesting was the, the, the flavour profiles of what was coming through. Definite variation. Yeah, you could, you could really taste the, the, the fruits appearing and then the earthier tones appearing. Yeah. Later in the later in the run, definitely it's high. It's almost like raspberries after five minutes, and that then chimes, kind of concurs with your figures for the spirit run at the three spring springbank whiskies, and it also concurs and, and chimes with uh, some figures I'll run through just now, comparing uh, Kalila and Lagavulin because. Um, as Andrew Jefford in his Peat Smoking Spirit, I'm sure everybody knows this book because it's just it's a bit of a Bible for Isla Files. Kalila are going on Spirit at 75 and coming off at 65. And Lagavulin, who I believe use the same spec malt, have the same uh, supplier for the malt. Obviously, Diageo are going to be running it through the Pertellan maltings. And it would appear that Kalila and, Kalila and Lagavulin are using the same ingredients, 
but it's all down to how the distillery is operated that allows it to uh, furnish the whiskey with a different character. So where, where Kalila are cutting on to spirit at 75% ABV and coming off at 65, Lagavulin are coming on at 72, slightly later, and coming off at 59. So the comparison there with Lagavulin looking at it alongside your long row, it appears that if you're wanting those heavier, more phenolic characteristics to come through, you take it from later on in the spirit run. And that's where those characteristics are, are prevalent in the, in the spirit. I, I picked that up too, that the phenols don't come until later in, in running the spirit. But once they, once they arrive, that's them. They're a constant. Right. They, they don't tail off into the faints or anything. So we've worked out that the four shots is the stuff that's got the rubbish that's left over from the previous distillation. <laughs> has been cleaned out yeah and my sense is that actually the next point the point at which you come off spirit really is is where there's some art in there but it's also it's about what you're deciding your spirit profile is going to be like so the the fruity notes the esters are up front they're they're very to the fore of your spirit run once you started to make the cut so that those are all those flavors like you know berries, fruits, wine, oranges, pineapples, and and then I even kind of like rum notes and stuff like that are going to be the ones that come up front right away in terms of the esters. But there's the more um, oily, mustier notes of of aldehydes come later, and they they tail off to a point, if that's the right term. But it's the art in terms of spirit making is deciding how much of the mustier, fustier spirit run you want to have. Aye. Well, when we were doing that um, tasting at Kilhoman with Anthony Wills, and anyone who's listening, get onto uh, the Kilhoman um, YouTube channel and watch this again, because you can still go back and watch it, and you can, mm. you can hear um, Anthony was saying that Dr. Jim Swan was instrumental in helping him figure out the, the all the parameters within which Kilhoman is going to be working and negotiating where they're going to take their spirit run, take their, take their cut. And Anthony said that Jim Swan came back a couple of years later and said, now nah, we need to move this spirit cut. And they moved it up. They went on to spirit earlier and they came off earlier. So you might, if you've got a, if you've got a collection of Kilhomans, you might be able to go back and really taste that difference in the spirit when they moved the spirit run, when they moved to the cut points. Yeah, and I, can't remember, I can't remember exactly when he said that happened, whether it was after a year of this, the, the distillery working or whether it was after five years. But um, I would really recommend folk go and check out that Colhoman spirit run tasting on YouTube. It was really great. Yeah, and, and at the risk of um, being a bit, sanctified here and exclusive in those minis that you very kindly purloined for us Stuart the first two in terms of five and 25 are incredibly fruit laden mm -hmm. beautifully so and in fact actually I, I think I've got better than because it's, it's some weeks since we, we did that and they've, they've laid there in their wee minis 
um, since. But it's not until you get to 45 minutes that I can smell any smoke. <laughs> Had we not been doing this and then getting online with Coleman and stuff, I, I think this is enriching in, in my whole understanding of the distilling process. Yeah. How fragile it is even. Fragile is perhaps not the right word, but how complicated and nuanced it is in the process. And you can definitely get the, after 45 minutes, you definitely get the smokiness coming through. And then when you get back down to the, once you're at 90 minutes, which presumably must be pretty close to the end of their cup. There's there's definite smokiness in there, but there's those funky, fusty, off notes of... Farmyardy stuff. Yeah, wet sheep and stuff like that. And, the, and it's just unfortunate that um, Andrew Jeffords wrote that book before he really got a chance to, you know, Kilhoman was still really in its infancy. I don't think it, I don't think it produced anything yet. So mm. um, I always kind of hoped that Jefford would, would do an updated version of uh, Pete Smoking Spirit. And he kind of did. And it's, it's now called something else. It's called... Whiskey Island, and it's it's basically Pete Smoking Spirit, and the last chapter is just about the establishment of Cohoman and uh, Arnahoe. But it's it's quite scant on the information in comparison with the the really deep dive he does with all of the other distilleries that are that were established when he was writing the first book. So, have we got as far as thinking then? Okay, we've got cut. Now we want to decide. What flavours we want to grab? So if you're the if you're the distiller, you've got rid of the mucky stuff from the last distillation, and the fruity stuff, the very upfront esters and stuff like that are going to come in bit pretty quickly. But then these more fusty notes, the aldehydes, and your phenols are are going. Phenols, I think, about halfway through, if I'm right, and but the aldehydes are shortly before. And I wonder then, so that's like the heavier alcohols, like the fusel oils, we call them sometimes, mm-hmm. um, or maybe even something like acceptable impurities. But that's where the flavour congeners are, or the congeners are. And I think, if I'm right, that's where your hangover is. Because <laughs> that's these are the where the impurities are in the alcohol. So although these are going to add flavour to the, the spirit run, it's those impurities that are going to be where your hangover, the aldehydes or the are the hydrocarbons where your hangover lives. Right. Um, so although you we we enjoy whiskey with with gusto, the richer flavors are are where those hydrocarbons are the ones that contain the ones that give you the the headache in the morning. Yeah. Heal you. But it's it's the art of the distiller to decide when to make that cut. So clearly. Peter whiskey by virtue of where the phenols come on is going to grab a higher faints content if they're cutting at a lower alcohol. So so there's more of the faints are going to be coming in. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a kind of spectrum of flavours that are available. The colouring, if you could imagine, the, 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 the spectrum changes from fruity to more pungent, earthy into the phenols. And then the color changes again gradually into the the off flavors yeah. of the of the faints, and it's it's that it's discerning, yeah, it's that really fine tuned skill of getting the f- getting 
getting the, the phenols that you want, but not allowing the, the off flavours of the faints to, to taint your um, to taint your, your whiskey. Um, yeah. I've also heard about when the four shots are coming through and then they go into spirit. I can't remember who it was I heard talking about this. It might have been the guys over at Waterford, maybe, saying that when they, when they go into spirit, they really knock the temperature back and they, they run it really, they run the stills a lot slower to allow for much more reflux and just take your time. Don't rush the spirit through. Allow it, allow it to take its time and have a big long chat, a big long conversation with the copper. Just you don't want to be rushing it through because that's going to end up in a really harsh, fiery spirit. So I think low and slow is the way that they were they were chatting about it. Took the words right out of my mouth because I think we we picked up right early on that the the application of heat in terms of driving the distillation process was crucial here. There's a lot of skill in that mm. in terms of making like you're saying, slow and low. And it might it might help to think we we've talked about the, the esters being those the fruity aromatic berries, wine, rum even, but also the, the kind of tropical fruits of the pineapple and those more acidic notes like uh, pear drops, bananas even sometimes even violets, roses, and slightly more musty sometimes, you know, like honey, biscuits, leather, porridge even, are, are still all early on in your mix. And you can imagine that that's, that's quite a nice mix in itself. So hmm. you hear a lot of certainly more traditional views about those are the flavours that the so-called lighter space-sided whiskies are trying to, are trying to get. And, I'm sure we'll come back to that notion of regionality and stuff like that in, in another podcast. But conversely, though, once you get in, as these esters begin to diminish, the aldehydes are, are the fusel oils. And I, I, I think it's right to think of them as almost kind of like pre-faint. So you know, you've now got a wide tail and you decide when, when you've had enough flavour. Mm. But there's still... They're quite complex organo sulfur, organo nitrogen compounds. But the stuff that people I thought often you said you weren't a chemist. Yeah, well, I'm a good reader though. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, uh, how many times we've been in a in a room drinking whiskey with other folk and they go and they go, like, What? You can't like that. You know, there, you know, there's, there's a, there are such a, there's such a thing as a room splitting whiskey, in terms of opinion, and not many folk complain about getting too many berries in their whiskey. Mm. Although actually, I haven't put that up there. I, I have to confess, I'm a wee bit susceptible to the pear drops notes. So those high esters are, are not my favourite because that that drifts into the world of nail varnish. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm digressing again because I want to talk about the aldehydes because you know, these are all the ones that are the controversial ones because in terms of their detectability, they, they only need to be very low in terms of parts per million for you to be picking up on them, apparently. Yeah, so, a very low th- uh, threshold for, um, yeah. uh, what do they call it? Well, it's, it's the something threshold. The detectability, something like that? Yeah, perception threshold. threshold. Yeah. Right. So stuff like, Sour notes, you know, like 
off milk and stuff like that, leafy bits of unripe fruit and leaves and stuff like that. I, 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 certainly foliage, you know, sulfury notes definitely, and, and that that you run the whole gamble of sulfur, don't you? Because you, how many times have we been in those places where oh, I just it stinks like somebody's gym shoes, rotten eggs, rubber, struck matches, mm-hmm. burnt meat, cat pee, rotten fish. Can't say I've ever tasted cat pee, but go on. Yeah, certainly smelled it. Um, <laughs> vomit, cheese, sweaty feet, armpits, and, and then there's, there's, there's the peculiar nice ones, and peculiar a mix into back into the the esters in terms of spearmint, raspberries, and violets. So those were all the ones I picked up that people had had identified, and that you're trying to make an educated choice as to which ones are going to be in. Yeah, what we have to remember is that you might try and select for these some of these flavor profiles off this off the spirit cut, but you never know how it's going to turn out after it's spent three, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years in cask. And exactly. one man's and, and one man's baby vomit is another man's sweat <laughs> So yeah. we've we've all been in that room, and, <laughs> and, and uh, with somebody's sweaty feet or somebody else saying they've just had the best whiskey in their life ever. Yeah, yeah. but um, I th- I think what you were mentioning in terms of the application of heat seems critical to how these flavours arrive because that, the more you get with the the copper, the mellower. But let's 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 link that back with it with the the whole change in the way that the distilleries are run when they used to be run with on direct firing all across the board every single one of them was direct fired with coal or peat underneath the stills now what's that going to do when your when your four shots are coming over and this and the still has been run super hot what's that going to do to your spirit that's going to you're going to be running really fast and really hot you're going to get minimal reflux so it's no wonder that we we might um, lament the the demise of the uh, romantic traditional way of running a distillery but sometimes I think I can imagine some of the whiskey would have been pretty rough certainly nothing like what we've got by and large these days and, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that modern is always better but just talking about the the, the application of heat on the spirit run, if we know that we should be running it low and slow to maximize reflux, to minimize hot, fiery spirit, then how that must have been some task to, to manage those stills in the 1850s or, or before that, or even in the, in the early 19th, uh, in the early 20th century, to manage those stills and to really be on top of that application of heat. You know, how long was that spirit run at Colhoman? Was it, you know, two hours? So you've only, you don't have a lot, you don't have a huge window in which to really control that heat that's going to really affect your spirit. So you're either on it or you're producing stuff that's pretty, going to be pretty rough. Well, I, I think you're on to something perfectly there, Stuart. And I certainly heard say that kind of around the you know, kind of prohibition USA and 
where Campbelltown had a link to North America, given that it had a day in terms of a day's sailing, it was it was closer. But I, I certainly heard Frank McHardy, who was manager at Springbank, and I think it picked up elsewhere that you know either through poor management or greed or just recklessness because, oh, well, it's prohibition. We don't need to supply any decent stuff. That Campbelltown lost its reputation mm. for good whiskey because they ran the stills hard, fast, never giving them a chance to rest, and then produced really, really bad whiskey. And you can imagine then that people aren't going to be too, in, in that mindset, you're not going to be too worried about how many four, how much the four shots are, look at, are coming through not going to be too worried about how where you make your cut in terms of feints because you want as much in the barrel as you can possibly can and having mentioned all those the aldehyde aldehydic or the alde sorry i'll just say aldehydes because i'm not getting into any of that any of those other words but the the stinky ones the cheese the vomit the stinky feet the rot the fish because then what campbelltown then had a reputation yeah. for whiskey that stank like rotten fish to the point where the the legend was oh they don't they've they've run out of casks and they've just matured the whiskey in fish barrels. Yeah. So clearly something went that's one aspect that went wrong in terms of the whiskey economy in Campbelltown that that in the end led to its demise. Alright. I think we can we well, that's one fact you know there was also the coal mine Stop producing coal. Aye, but there's, there's, we, we definitely need to go multifaceted in that, but the reputation went down the tubes because yeah. perhaps yeah. people were running their, their stills fast and, and without really much uh, attention to detail in terms of capturing the best flavours uh, possible. So we've taken our spirit cut. We've come off spirit at somewhere, you know, round about... 72 or 69, 65% if you're, if you're into your heavy, big PT whiskies. And that cut, that portion is partitioned away and filled into casks. And the faints are kept and put into the, are they put into the, they're put into the low wine still. They're put into the second still on the next distillation run. And I think we're done. Yeah, I think we are. It's nearly time for your quote. Oh, you're reading. And just while you're you're getting that together, I think it's nice to, like we were saying, each distiller makes their own judgment. So, in terms of your average alcohol strength that's coming off the still, I picked up that even of all of that wash and wort that was fermented, as little as between 8 and 10% of that will end up as whiskey, you know, a 12th to a 13th. It's a lot uh, of work. It's a lot of work to, you know, for, for that little portion to end up. And then, and then it still evaporates when it's in the cask as well. Yeah, no. Cheeky, eh? And, uh, and for all, East Distiller chooses a point, and we've mentioned about where Springbank is, and we don't want to get too focused on them, although I think we do keep coming back to them because they represent something of the craft and the, mm. a little bit oldy stuff. But having put that in context, you know, the, you know, the usual alcohol 
average after the second run is about 70%. But Ben Rennes will be is around about 76. Ben Ronlach, bang on at 70. Khalil a wee bit higher, 71% is their average, you know, when they've got the, the tank all there together. But as you'd mentioned, with Lagavulin going way further d- down in terms of their their cut, 67.5. So they're effective alcohol. And of course, and we will come to maturation and filling, and there'll be a, a different view about adding uh, local water to those that spirit in terms of maturation. But yeah. suffice to say, you know, the average is not the, the general, or everybody doesn't necessarily adhere to what what the average is. Mm. But uh, and will depend on where the cuts taken, the phenol levels, and those kind of things. But suffice to say, I think. In the process of thinking this through, I've I've really come to appreciate that art of a really subtle art of choosing when to come on to spirit, and then gathering all the more tricky and possibly noxious chemicals and tastes and flavours at the end. It's particularly because they're so much more highly detectable in terms of parts per million. So, you know, you're going to detect sulphur really quickly in a dram if it's been cut too long mm-hmm. and I, like you were saying you you're not going to find that out until some might not find that out until some years later after it's been a, been in a cask which is a long time to wait to find that you've you've made a mistake and, and it's a it's it's an industrial business so that's a long time to wait to find that you've you've made a bit of a mess and lost a bit of money well, but, but the nature of that industry is, in, in a way, it's genius because you can blend that, you can blend that away. If you, if you own six, eight, 12, 24 distilleries, if you end up with one cask or, or one spirit run, I mean, what's that, what's that proportionately to, um, to a distillery's output per annum? One spirit run. Yeah, it might be only... Six or seven casks, yeah, depending on the distillery. So that could be, let's say you've got a distillery that's producing a million litres a year. One spirit run is going to be a thousand litres, is it? Not even that. So it's, it's, it's a pretty small proportion of the annual output. And you can blend it away. If, if you've fucked up, you can hopefully, the way that, the blenders would see it is that they can blend it away in in, in, in one of their blends. Yeah, and, and and maybe as has been suggested by some of the um, the independent bottlers we've met over over the years, that different markets like different spirits. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, dark sherry, sulfury spirits go down really well in mm-hmm. Germany compared to other other markets. Apparently. Well, I, I had a, I had a, a bottle from an independent bottler recently, and I was drinking it back to back with um, the same distillery official bottling. I can't remember; it was roughly about the same age, about sixteen years old, both of them. And the distillery bottling was great. It was really great. It's a big name; everybody knows it. And the independent bottling was good but it was just, it was a single cask 
and it was exhibiting a lot of characteristics that I, I really didn't find desirable at all. So there's the, there's the downside of your know, independent bottlers and single cask stuff. So maybe we should um, keep that one for a future episode. I've been reading Ian Buxton's Whiskies Galore, a tour of Scotland's island distilleries, primarily because I'm a big lover of Scotland's islands and Scotland's islands whiskies. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, it's, 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 it's more a travelogue uh, with some whiskey uh, insights as opposed to a deep dive into um, all of the distilleries dotted around the West Coast. But in his introduction, there was just a, a, a paragraph and it, it, it caught my eye. And I'll include this here just as a way of signing off, not to be judgmental and to castigate, but just as a way of stimulating a little bit of thought, a little bit of debate, maybe, you know, just to, something to cogitate. So Ian Buxton says, uh, some people collect whiskies but never drink them. Some people, may they get help soon, even promote whiskey as an investment, a trend upon which certain distillers have happily capitalised, leading to ever more elaborately packaged special bottlings of increasing cost and vulgarity and a general drift upwards in the price of whiskey. All this is to be deplored by the genuine and righteous student of whiskey who understands instinctively that whiskey was made to be drunk and has no meaning until the moment of its consumption. So um, let's raise a glass to the distillers. Thanks for all your work. Uh, thanks to Ian Buxton for his uh, erudite and eloquent prose and Peter to you as well for your insights and eloquent pronunciations on the art of distilling <laughs> and your good self too Stuart that was a beautifully put at the end there and can only yeah I can only share the sentiments that whiskey is only always better when it's open and being drunk and even better when it's being shared absolutely yeah you're here yes the distillers <laughs> <laughs>